In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. and gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast i hope everybody's having a beautiful day i hope wherever you are the sun is shining or maybe there's a silver lining right above you and the birds are singing the wind is at your back i got an incredible show and guest for you today a warm embrace to all gathered here today as we embark on a journey of profound exploration and enlightenment with our esteemed guest dr Bianca Siben. I hope I pronounced that accurately. Hailing from the vibrant city of Brisbane, Australia, Bianca is not just a clinical psychologist, but a trailblazer in the realms of indigenous psychedelic assisted therapies, IPAT, where her work resonates at the intersection of complex trauma, disassociative disorders, and the profound healing potential of plant medicines. Dr. Bianca's professional journey extends far beyond the confines of conventional practice reaching into the heart of indigenous communities and their time-honored traditions. As we welcome her, we celebrate her commitment to acknowledging the traditional custodians and her unwavering respect for indigenous ways of knowing, being, and doing within the evolving landscape of psychedelics. Her quest for holistic well-being is not a mere profession, but a calling. From her immersive experiences in Mexico, undertaking a PhD in indigenous psychology, to her dedicated work in hospitals, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Services, and private practice. Dr. Bianca's journey has been one of discovery and cultural integration. As a beacon of cultural safety, Dr. Bianca is dedicated to the vision of developing a model of psychedelic assisted therapy that respects and incorporates indigenous wisdom. Her approach is a harmonious blend of body, mind, spirit, community, and environment, creating a holistic framework for healing that transcends traditional boundaries. Intriguingly, Dr. Bianca doesn't just delve into the theoretical, she actively contributes to the psychedelic discourse. Her interest in 5-MeO-DMT and her involvement in the 5-MeO Information and Vital Education Platform showcases her commitment to education, awareness, and understanding within the psychedelic community. Moreover, Dr. Bianca's pivotal role in ensuring indigenous representation and consideration in the psychedelic space is reflected in her cultural consultation services. Dr. Bianca, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was quite the introduction. 
<laughs> I always want people to see the 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 reason why I have people on my podcast and the reason I expect them and all the cool work they're doing. And so I want I think that should be an important part of it. So thank you for that. What how um the landscape in the world of psychedelics is is really changing at an interesting pace. And I guess maybe I'll just jump into this first question here of of what was it that really got you motivated in getting into this space here? Uh, so back when I started my PhD in 2012, I was working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at the time and uh, quite aware of the challenges in accessing health and mental health services uh, because the lack of cultural safety um, and inclusivity and typically these services have been a source of, of harm to not only Indigenous people here but worldwide. So I did my PhD looking at uh, barriers to service use and access but I was doing somewhat of a comparative uh, project with what was going on in Mexico City. So I ended up spending uh, several years going back and forth between uh, Australia and Mexico and working with Indigenous groups over there and looking at traditional medicine use and incorporating that into the Western medical model to make it as safe as possible when people do need to access those particular tertiary services. So, uh, yeah, that was my introduction to the world of plant medicine as well. And from there on became quite interested in uh, the ability to work with these medicines for um, improved mental health and how do we uh, safely and respectfully and with reparations and reciprocity in mind um, attempt to integrate these medicines into the Western medical model. It seems to me it doesn't take a, a long trip to the library to realize that for quite some time the Western world has moved its way into indigenous cultures and taken their medicine and used it for themselves and used it without context. Is how were you received when you started working with these cultures? I'm sure they, they probably weren't too happy to see you, or maybe they're like, oh, this, you're just one of the same. Or was there, was there a sort of a getting to knowing period? Totally. And I think that's <laughs> the that's the point. I mean, I uh, both both here in Australia and Mexico, it's not like I walked in and said, hey, this is my research and I'm going to do this and then I'm going to up and, and leave. In fact, I've been to Mexico 13 times in the last 13 years. So um, I'm clearly not uh, leaving anytime soon. Uh, and yeah, I spent several months just being with communities, getting to know people, volunteering my time in the service before even talking about the, the research project. And there was conversations around, uh, you know, what what kind of reciprocity might be involved. So it wasn't a one-way street of only myself getting any benefit by being able to submit my thesis. And so I, I think that is just generally across the board such an important thing is establishing those relationships, you know, not only right relationship with the medicine, but 
right relationship and good interpersonal relationships with the communities because in in research in particular it is incredibly extractive we go in we get what we need and we leave again and no wonder um there might be a reluctance to work with western researchers so uh i certainly make make it a priority to spend time in communities where i can for no particular purpose other than to be part of community get to know people and and build relationships because i think relationships are everything i love that often when i think of when i think of mycelium growing i think of the way it grows and it connects in some ways that it speaks of community and when i look at the western model it's it does seem that we have this extractive sort of personality trait and we we see it in relationships we see it in abusive relationships we see it in our relationship to to oil or resources and is do you think that maybe on some level that that not only can the medicine teach us more about communities but the the indigenous ways can teach us better about communities absolutely and uh you know those collectivist cultures in general are well versed in the importance of community because the well-being of the individual is the well-being of the community you know and so healing itself doesn't happen in isolation it happens within the context of the community and the group and the collective well-being and whereas in the west we have this hyper individualism this this fixation on the individual so everyone's in individual therapy and the onus is on you and it's all about self-care rather than community care and uh i think that is in, inherently inherently problematic because we're not lone wolves we're not supposed to do things on our own we are social beings but for many people the trauma has also happened within the context of a relationship mm-hmm. and so they may be more inclined to stay away disconnect as a means of trying to keep themselves safe uh however where trauma is relational i think healing is also relational and happens within the context of a relationship that's not to undermine the importance of individual therapy but that's only one piece of the pie it's only one part of the story yeah it's i was speaking with some people recently we were talking about mental wellness and illness and the way things are transmitted and we began talking about how you know when flu season comes everybody catches a cold and it seems like illness can be contagious do you think that maybe wellness can be contagious as well yeah especially within well communities so um if the community is well then the individual is well and that is you know taking care of each other taking care of natural environment taking care of spiritual and emotional well-being and i think that does happen together in community so we we have a we have a lot to learn we we have a huge amount to learn yeah i it's fascinating i'm i'm glad that you're doing the work you're doing i I, one particular area that i've noticed in the west is that 
there seems to be a lack of rites of passage and rituals and ceremonies. I mean, there are some, but they seem devoid of the real meaning out there. And you've, mm -hmm. like, you have traveled and spent time in a lot of indigenous cultures where they have ceremonies and there's a ritual and there's rites of passage. And I was wondering, maybe could you share an example of, of maybe the importance of rituals and rites of passage or maybe give an example? Yeah, and we absolutely have lost a lot of these things in the West. We've got various attempts at trying to create some kind of ritual or ceremony, but for the most part that tends to happen in a very culturally appropriated way, which is also a problem. Uh, but I would say many individuals in the West are disconnected from their own ancestry. Mm. You know, they don't know a lot about their family of origin or the rituals and ceremonies that have occurred within their own lineage for various reasons. So I think of myself as um, uh, an Italian Australian. A lot of my interest in ceremony and, say, plant medicine and herbalism comes from the Italian lineage uh, and incorporating ceremony and ritual but from that particular lens. And so a lot of the work we do in IPAT is encouraging people to explore and connect with their own ancestry as a way of bringing back in and connecting with ceremony and ritual but in a way that is not appropriating or taking from another culture that they don't have any connection to or um, have not studied or learned or sought permission to work with or use whatever it is that they're using because at the same time from a well-being and a connection to self and, and one's place in, in the greater universe, there are benefits to connecting with and, and going back to your own ancestry and um, you know, knowing your own lineage and building that connection to your ancestors. So I think that's an important way that we can all connect with and bring back ceremony and ritual, but through our own lineages. Yeah, I like that. I I often think that there's this, in my life, I can only speak to what happened to me, but as I got older in life, I realized this concept of generational trauma and these patterns that repeat, you know, and, and sometimes it hits you like a brick. And for me, I was like, oh my gosh, no wonder I'm afraid of that. My whole family's afraid of that. Why wouldn't they be afraid of that? And it was like this aha moment. And in some ways, I can't help but think that had there been a rite of passage, like a, a young man becoming a man or a man becoming an elder, like you, you become aware of that secret on some level, the information is represented in that ceremony. It seems like in the West, we're just, we're left to find it for ourselves and, and, and you struggle there. Like maybe that's why we have these disassociative diseases. And do you think there's a connection there between the, the generational trauma and some of the diseases we're seeing in the West? Well, for sure, because if we take um, dissociation as a coping mechanism and mm. needing to shut down or disconnect or disconnect from our felt sense, our felt uh, our, our bodies in order to be safe, 
you know, that usually occurs as a result of not being able to co-regulate and re-regulate ourselves with our primary caregivers in, in childhood. And that may be because they themselves have also had to survive by detaching and disconnecting. Yeah. You know, I think of uh, most of our grandparents, for example, have lived through wars or the Great Depression or um, being completely in survival mode. So things like affection and warmth, you know, are kind of a luxury when what you're actually trying to do is meet your basic physiological needs on a day-to-day -day basis. And so uh, then we parent in that way as well and we create the next generation of uh, detachment, dissociation, disconnection from the felt sense, uh, emotional uh, emotional uh, suppression, those kinds of things. And so uh, it's so powerful when somebody goes on their healing journey to be the one in their family to break that cycle, to find safety and cultivate a felt sense of safety in their own body for the first time as an adult and to choose relationships and people that uh, are conducive to their well-being, that they can feel safe around, that they can have kind of discernment to know who to connect to and who to keep um, at a very boundaried distance or whatever. So, yeah, it can certainly be inherited and not always for malicious reasons you know it, it can be like that example of that survival comes first right uh, and so it is a it's a real challenge for the people that are the cycle breakers in their family it can often be quite a lonely journey um, and it's the future generations that are the ones to benefit most from that yeah yeah, it, in some ways I can see it all through mythology. Like, it, you know, we have Odysseus and, you know, all these individual hero quests. And even Joseph Campbell talks about like the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering maybe, can, can you, are there some different types of mythology or creation stories that you've learned by studying with indigenous people that maybe speak to a different type of lifestyle? Well, I can't um, speak to stories right. uh, because they're not my stories to True. tell. Uh, and especially here in Australia, that knowledge is very protected. Uh, it is only meant for those who are in line to receive it. And often if a story is shared with you, it is for you only. But with that in mind, and I guess this is the work of the amazing people that have co-created IPAT together is those more general ways of knowing, being and doing and in, in the Indigenous worldview of, uh, you know, community and, and connection and the well-being of the group is the well-being of the individual and the need for, for that support and that connection. And so... Uh, you, you know, that, I guess, with your, your hero's journey and when there is that call to adventure, you do need your your fellowship of the ring with you <laughs> as well, right? You can't yeah. do this 
on your own. And this is this is something that has been inherently a part of Indigenous communities since time immemorial. Uh, in terms of frameworks that I work from mm. uh, here in Australia, there is a model of a social, the social and emotional well-being model, which is uh, what IPATS protocols and consultation is based on. And it is that really holistic view of connection to land, connection to culture, connection to spirit and ancestry, connection to community, um, and all of those things together that encompass well-being. So there's there's nothing about that model that is just solely about the individual. Of course, the individual has their responsibility to participate in their own recovery, their own healing journey, but also to the betterment of their community as well. Uh, but you're certainly not doing it on your own. Yeah. It's what are what are some of the core tenets of iPad? Like, are, like if, if you were to if you were to give us in the audience a a sort of idea of what what it is that encompasses them, what their foundation is, and what their message is, what what would that be? Well, yeah, iPad. Um, we are a group that we formed. It'll be about two years ago now. With everything that has been going on here in Australia. Uh, with the uh, legalization of MDMA and psilocybin in particular to be prescribed under specific conditions. So MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. But then also there's lots of research going on with different um, uh, plants containing various psychedelics. And many of these plants are incredibly sacred to Indigenous peoples worldwide and there's plants here that are incredibly sacred to Indigenous peoples here in Australia. So we came together because we want to make sure that there is a voice for Indigenous peoples here in Australia to have, um, have a say and participate in this very rapidly changing psychedelic landscape but also to support the accessibility of plant medicines and their therapeutic use for Indigenous peoples. So we've come together to create a model of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy that incorporates these Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing that has been created by Indigenous peoples from the ground up so that for those people that would like to access these treatments in that above ground setting, that there's a way that they can do that that is accessible and has cultural safety in mind. But at the same time, this model is a model for all people because we believe that all people could benefit from working with plant medicines in this way through developing right relationship with these medicines, um, for having reverence and respect for the Indigenous traditions, that this this wisdom, which is not a new paradigm as we're hearing, it's um, ancient wisdom, right? And so we really want to make sure there is that rep Indigenous representation in the psychedelic space 
that there's a place for Indigenous therapists that maybe don't have the recognised qualifications but are trained in culturally informed trauma healing practices that are much better equipped to serve their communities um, and ensure that um, organisations, companies, etc., that are going to be working with these medicines are engaging with and consulting and building relationships with Indigenous peoples if they are going to be working with and most likely profiting off mm. these very sacred medicines. Yeah, that's really well said. I Sometimes I wonder if people are aware of the real dangers of taking some of the medicines away from the ceremony. Like when we talked about disassociatives, there's, I think that there's a, a, there's a great, I think that medicinal plants have a great purpose and a possibility of really healing people's traumas. However, I think used in the wrong sense, they can, they can put people in a place of fear and or disassociative too. They could be used to disassociate. They could be used to run away from a problem as much as they could be used to confront a problem. And it sounds that you're building a bridge there. Have you noticed that aspect too? Like there, there is a chance for people to use them the wrong way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And without having that cultural container in place, nice. which is where missing in the Western world for the most part, um, there's often not a soft place to land for people after participating in ceremonies or in various trial protocols or whatever, the, the number of integration sessions isn't sufficient or it's not really hitting the, the mark because it's still this very individual um, centered thing that we're, that we're doing. The other thing is that plant medicines aren't for everybody. You know, the, at the end of the day, these medicines were not intended for treating mental health conditions. They were used um, in ceremony, in the cultural context, and, and for specific reasons, you know, for very spiritual or sacred ceremony. And it's only really now that the West is catching up and adopting these practices that we're seeing more of this clinical application mm -hmm. for the use of these medicines. But that means we have to know like who is suitable and who might not be suitable or at least right now and need further therapy or preparation to then um, potentially be a suitable candidate for working with these medicines. So particularly with trauma or complex trauma, if you have somebody who has dissociation as a feature of their trauma, well, they may not have a really strong access to their grounded adult self. They might not have a fully developed or strong sense of self. And if you're going to go on a psychedelic journey and potentially experience things like ego dissolution, mm -hmm. you need a strong sense of self to return to. Otherwise, you may likely exacerbate the fragmentation. And so uh, you may also have a bunch of protector parts that have been there to help you throughout your lifetime by being able to detach, disconnect, shut down in situations where 
you physically can't get out of there. And so then if you take a psychedelic and you haven't prepared all parts of you and not all parts of you are on board with the process and are not on board with the idea of surrendering and allowing, they will fight tooth and nail. And that's when you're going to have a really, really difficult journey because your your internal system is fighting against that the, the process. And that's when people can have very bad or very distressing trips and then go on to experience things like depersonalization, derealization, heightened anxiety, reactivations, all of those things in the aftermath. And they are typically the people that I see in my private practice mm. that come to me after the fact of having participated in a ceremony of some kind where perhaps preparation constituted as of a phone call that said, are you taking SSRIs? Mm. And then integration was a PDF with some mm. average suggestions mm. on it, you know, and then maybe they were in a ceremony of 60 people that only had two facilitators. So uh, they're not supported, they're not prepared, they're likely not feeling safe, they probably haven't met the facilitator or the other people prior to build that container of safety and not all of their internal system and the, their dissociative parts that have protected them and helped them out over the years are not on board or consenting to the process and essentially their defences get blasted through and that can be what is very um, destabilising and... I know there's a lot of contention as to whether a bad trip exists and is mm. it a bad trip or is it just a challenging trip? And I do think that there's a difference between challenging trips and, and bad trips for sure. What do you think that that difference is? Well, a challenging trip is, you know, for, for me a challenging trip is where you might um, go through a process of things that are really um, really painful, really uncomfortable, um, absolutely challenging, but you are held, you're supported. Um, there's someone or your, your facilitators, your therapist, whatever, holding you in that. You So you're not going through that alone because challenging experiences can be some of the most fruitful for people. Whereas I'd say a bad trip is when um, poten potentially you're overserved. Mm. So um, I've certainly had people that may have been, say, pretty seasoned ayahuasca drinkers, but then uh, maybe got a little overconfident and <laughs> had that extra cup or whatever and just completely overdosed and then have just had a had a really horrendous time as a result and not for lack of support not for lack of um trust or uh a, a good relationship with their facilitators um like the the setting maybe was was totally fine and and the set their set as well they wasn't wasn't their first time around uh but then they've just had way too much medicine right um, or in times where somebody is dissociative or has complex trauma and they're ill-prepared and not adequately supported 
and they are reliving their trauma in in sometimes even a worse way than it actually happened and there isn't the safety or the the support there um, and it just becomes another compounded trauma, then uh, I wouldn't say that's a challenging trip because typically with challenging trips there's still fruit at the end of the integration process, whereas in bad trips sometimes there, I, I do believe that there is just nothing that people can take from it other than perhaps the lesson of, gee, I'm not ready for this or, gee, next time around I'm going to have to really know how to vet my facilitators, which is an important lesson. But I still think that there's a big difference between going through a challenge well supported with your fellowship um, rather than just reliving hell, mm -hmm. um, having another compounded trauma due to poor set and setting or being completely overdosed with, with medicine. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's really well said. Oftentimes in heightened states of awareness, there's this spiritual component. For some people, we all have different names for that which we believe is greater than us. But there seems to be this spiritual component that sometimes I think Marseille Iliad talks about the terror before the sacred or Sometimes we feel this overwhelming oneness or this love, but what, what, what do you have to, when you think about the spiritual component of the heightened states of awareness, what do you think about? Well, I think that can be really different for the individual, depending on their worldview and how they make, how they make sense of the world. Um, and many of these things may show up as metaphors so you know you have atheists that felt a connection to god or but then realized that they were god <laughs> god is everything you know and um whereas some people may take that message very literally you know that uh they truly had a communion with god in in that experience and i think particularly with psilocybin, uh, there is that reliable kind of sense of remembering our connection mm -hmm. to something greater than ourselves and that increased sense of connection and losing that illusion of separateness seems to be one of the most therapeutically beneficial uh, aspects of working with psilocybin. And then with 5-MeO-DMT, which in pretty... Um, decent doses can very much reliably produce that full ego dissolution and becoming a drop back in the infinite ocean and that oceanic boundlessness, that can really inspire states of awe and uh, feeling complete love, you know, the love of the, the mother, the love of the womb, of the earth, or those kinds of things. And that connection to that um, embodied sense or, you know, that difference between knowing something, knowing I am loved, but really having a complete embodied experience of feeling that to, you know, every cell in your body radiating that, I think that's part of the spiritual experience as well, you know, like, there's knowing and then there's knowing <laughs> I think that's 
what psychedelics help with. They, they help with the, the, the embodied knowing, you know. I do know. I love it. I <laughs> I think it speaks to the idea. You know, another thing that I always bump up against is this ineffability. And we hear it all the time. Like, oh, I, I, I was in this moment, but I just can't bring it back. And on some level, that I think that has a relationship to the knowing. It's this unexplainable moment that both you and I can realize, that we both can experience, but there's no words for it. That that mm -hmm. seems like a spiritual component for me as well. And it's yeah. it's just this you know, you, you get the goosebumps and you're like, Oh my God, I got all the answers. And then it's, it's gone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the integration is okay. so important. And I'm a big fan of incorporating uh, more somatically orientated practices into integration as well, particularly when there are those moments of joy or bliss or awe or love and how do we um, enhance the glow of those experiences and maintain a degree of connection to that. And that's going to be through their commitment to um, integrating that. Otherwise, it'll be a beautiful experience, but it'll fade away without intentionally um, working to continue to anchor and savor uh, those experiences. And that does take work, right? And so whether it is connecting to the, the music or the smells or having some uh, movement-based embodiment practice as part of the integration, I think, that using um, our five senses and, and more of our somatic, you know, from sensory motor psychotherapy, we'll call it like core organizers. So movement is one of the ways that we organize ourselves as well and can really help to embed uh, a feeling or a sense or um, a newfound um, interpretation of something into the body. So even in my clinical practice, if I've done EMDR or something with someone and we've processed a really difficult traumatic memory and they've gotten to a really good resolution, I'll invite them to think about how they're going to really anchor that in yeah. through something creative, through something movement-based, even through things like using their voice, song, those kinds of things where those somatic organisers of our experience can really help to, to, to um, savour and maintain connection to the benefits of um, what we've experienced in that journey. Otherwise, it will fade away. I'm not sure I've ever heard the the idea of using an anchor to connect the long-term results of of keeping that practice fresh, if that makes sense. But that's a beautiful way to do it. I, I, for some reason, I think of like the bee dancing in front of the other bees, and so they all know where he's going and stuff. You know, if you have a dance or you have something that will anchor you, of course, yeah. That, that would be a great way to keep the connections fresh, or at least keep that where music. music has been playing as well and perhaps there was a really um, 
a profound part of the journey and especially if in the in the more clinical model if you've got a therapist or facilitator that is taking note of where that awe was really experienced um, they can make note of the songs that were playing at that time and provide those to the participant as something to listen to or, or help to connect with again to that experience music is such a profound um, connector and how many of us listen to songs but also smells as well so if there's a particular smell that has been used in in the space um, to provide that to the participant as well as a way of using sound and and our sense of smell those those five senses to connect and then also um, integrating through other uh, things like um, somatic movement those kinds of things um, that can be a really powerful way to uh, yeah in, in anchor it in into the body uh, otherwise it may just become a distant memory of course there are more cognitive aspects to the process as well as we start to narrativize and and unpack and understand and, and do the meaning making uh but i think that the somatic component is also um, essential because otherwise we're somewhat colluding with going back to existing just from the neck up mm -hmm. and i think psychedelics are there to get us into our bodies and our felt sense and to create that safety as well so many of us live from the from the neck up you know we we live in a world that prioritizes the intellect and encourages us somewhat to dismiss the the knowing of our heart and the knowing of our gut right that they are two very important um, senses of the body as well and i guess science is kind of starting to validate that through you know the gut brain access those kinds of things but again this is something that indigenous peoples and traditional cultures worldwide have known for millennia and we're just catching up yeah it's it's humbling to to realize what we don't know and i, but I think it's a good thing i think it's you know I, I, on the topic of being able to prescribe psilocybin and MDMA for people who are that have treatment deficient de depression, how is that done? Is that done in a clinical setting? Are they allowed to go and seek ceremony somewhere else, or is what, what's the set and setting like for that? No. So as this um, is very very new, mm -hmm. it is being rolled out very slowly and in a very controlled way. So because. Uh, uh, we have a lot of pressure here in Australia. If we don't get this right, we could spoil it for everybody. And so right now it is under really strict conditions and the reality is um, financially it's going to be completely inaccessible mm. to most people. But right now the only people that can prescribe MDMA or psilocybin are psychiatrists that have applied for authorised prescribing status. So that involves them essentially submitting somewhat of a um, ethics application mm -hmm. to a human research ethics committee, um, detailing who will be in the treatment team, what their protocol will be, when it, where it will happen, those kinds of things. Um, but our TGA, our Therapeutic Goods Administration, 
has also said that this would have to be pretty similar to clinical trial protocols and have to happen um, either in like a hospital or some kind of uh, community health setting. So the psychiatrist applies, if they get granted the authorised prescribing status, they can assemble their team of therapists uh, to undergo psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So it's different to, say, the Oregon psilocybin mm. model, for example, that is more of the, the facilitation of the psilocybin, whereas here it is the whole psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy model of preparation, dosing and integration. And so that's another reason why it is likely to be very inaccessible because at the moment we don't have products um, on, uh, available here in Australia. So if products are being imported from mm. overseas. Then you've got the cost of two therapists in the room and the cost of um, the preparation and integration sessions. So until such time that there's more research and um, this can go on our Medicare scheme and the cost of the medication can go on our pharmaceutical benefits scheme most people are going to be looking at about twenty five thousand dollars wow this treatment because um that i mean it, it there may be some ways to get around that so let's say you're seeing a psychologist we as mm. psychologists can um bill our preparation and integration sessions under mm. Medicare is likely under um, skill building or, or those kinds of models. But the dosing session, if you've got um, two therapists in the room uh, for eight hours at a time, you know, that's going to be quite costly. And then uh, the, the cost of importing the medicine is going to be absorbed by the participant as well. And so until such time that those things can be addressed and say confirming that psychologists can bill under Medicare for prep and integration, those kinds of things, um, yeah, it's going to be for, for wealthy people only at this stage. Wow. I hold, I hold hope that when people see how effective it can be, that it will become somewhat more mainstreamed where, where the cost will come down. Because I, I, I do think that in the right set and ceremony, they can, it can have profound changes that are different than the regular model of addiction. You know, here in the States sometimes, it almost seems like the, the remedy for addiction is addiction itself. Like they'll give you this other pill or you can have this other thing that happens. And I think, mm -hmm. do you think that that is, it seems to me, and I would love to get your opinion that, on some level, psychedelics force us to confront the issue that's bothering us versus regular modalities to kind of put a patch on it. Do you, do you think that's accurate? Well, maybe I'm a bit biased here as a, as a psychologist, but I think this is something many of us psychologists have known is that um, addiction is a symptom of something. It's, it's not really the condition you know one of my first jobs I worked in an addiction and mental health service and I've never met someone that was addicted just because mm -hmm. right there's usually trauma either you know your, your standard PTSD or 
some kind of attachment wounding or what we call like a trauma of omission. So mm. when I'm talking to my clients, I'm more interested in the what didn't happen for them, you know, in terms of things like emotional neglect, um, you know, not being able to uh, build a secure attachment with their caregivers, those kinds of things, because they are typically the things that are going to result in needing something to really get that endorphin system going. Or, you know, if you talk to people that use heroin and you get them to explain what heroin feels like, so many of them say it feels like a warm hug from your mother. And I think that's very telling. Yeah. Right? And so there's absolutely room for symptom management, don't get me wrong, but we must simultaneously be addressing the cause of the need for that coping mechanism or whatever coping mechanism is being used in the first place. And I guess um, a lot of these services are more focused on symptom management rather than treating the root cause and that is probably because doing long-term therapy is arduous it's expensive it's hard it's not for mm. the faint-hearted you know um marcia linehan who created dialectical behavior therapy she has this one quote in one of her workbooks and it's one of my favorites mm. um, and it's the path out of hell is through misery I like that. And I think, you know, that, that's kind of what it is, the trauma healing journey, right? But you're not doing it on your own anymore. You've got your cheer squad. You've got people walking alongside you, you know, holding the flashlight for you as you're wading through the mud to try and get to the other side, right? And so, but that's long-term therapy. And I think the benefits of psychedelics is that they are that, that catalyst that, uh, we can probably expedite the process. It doesn't mean that the psychedelic is going to do everything for you because it's absolutely not. You have to work just as hard for the medicine as the medicine's going to work for you. But you can likely shave off a number of years of, of treatment, which is going to be far more cost effective in the long term as well. You know, so that's where I see the benefits of psychedelics is that it's not going to be like a pill that you prescribe. It's not going to be like another SSRI, but we may be able to potentially shave off a number of years of therapy um, by expediting the process somewhat through working with psychedelics. Experience has, has taught me that people who are very passionate and really care about the well-being of others or are able to cite incredible psychologists with lots of wisdom have usually gone through something in their life that pulls them towards there. Like what was there something that like as a as a young doctor Bianca that you encountered that made you want to like help heal everybody? <laughs> um, you know, and I, I think that most of us come from some kind of lived experience or some kind of adversity and at least here in Australia when you do your psychology training it's not really encouraged to talk about that or speak about that 
um, because there's that kind of stereotype of the psychologist is going to heal everyone in a misguided attempt to try and heal themselves. Yeah. And on, with that in mind, I, I think it is so important and absolutely necessary, even more so in psychedelic assisted therapy because of the transference and countertransference mm. being so amplified that you have to have done your own work and still be doing your own yeah. work really um, to be able to manage that and navigate that. But I do think that having that lived experience, being being able to have an embodied understanding of that where you have done your own work and where you continue to do your own work mm-hmm. is an absolute asset. And as one of my supervisors just says, trauma therapists are the most traumatised population. <laughs> but I think we see that a lot in psychology and I, yeah. and I say that to some of my supervisees. If you ask them what their favourite presentations are to work with, what's your favourite type of client? They're often talking about themselves, right? And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing as long as, A, you make sure you're aware of that and incorporate some diversity into your um, clinical caseload, but that you do your own work and continue to do your own work um, because we're all human. We all have a... Uh, a history we all you know we're living in very troubling times right now and you know we will come across clients that may trigger something in us as well and having the wisdom to know when that is manageable and the wisdom to know when to refer on is so important and yeah that is going to be even more important in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy uh and I, th- I think that there is harm that does happen with potentially well-meaning facilitators that either haven't done their own work or have had beneficial experiences with psychedelics themselves and now they do think they're that panacea that's yeah. going to heal everybody and they sell that idea to their psychedelic naive participants and that can be incredibly harmful so uh it can be an asset to have that lived experience but we must be well well on the way in our own journeys before we we think that we um can can help others so i guess the yeah i've had my adversities i've had my experiences and i think i've done a pretty good job at (laughs) integrating that and and walking the walk in terms of my own um, radical self-responsibility. And, uh, of course, things like ongoing supervision and peer supervision uh, are things that I engage in a lot more than I'm required to. You know, here we I think we're supposed to do something like 30 hours a year for our professional development. I would do triple that. And for good reason, given the type of clients that I work with. Well, I am thankful that you are doing the work, Dr. Bianca. I I really enjoy learning and I really enjoy getting to see the world from the point of view of of your eyes. And I'm thankful that you shared your, your, what you're doing with the audience. And I'm thankful to continue to talk to you and see what else comes out of the work over there. And I look forward to that. But before I let you go, where can people find you? What do you have coming up and what are you excited about? Uh, well, people can 
find me at my website, which is um, consciousinsights.com.au. And for people that are interested in the work of Indigenous Psychedelic Assisted Therapies, uh, you can check us out uh, on LinkedIn, Instagram, and our website, which is www.ipat.au, uh, and have a look at what we are doing in regards to consultation, but a few things that we'll hopefully have up and running in the new year, including some trainings and some possible uh, retreats as well. So, yeah, people are welcome to check us out and connect with us if they would like to know more. Fantastic. Hang on briefly. I'll talk to you briefly afterwards. But to everyone listening and watching, thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Go down to the show notes. Check out Dr. Bianca's links. And that's all we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment... Go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.